Welcome, everybody, to episode 509 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm talking about the podcast Monster Kid Radio, and I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'm excited for this week's show because it's, you know, what was supposed to come out last week, and I'll talk about that here in a second. I want to let you know what's happening this week here on the show. Of course, we've got an amazing Beta Capsule review from Mark Matsky. Remember that name. Of course, we have another amazing look at Famous Monsters of Filmland from our friend Kenny from Old Mexico. And then, that name I told you to remember. remember what was it? Remember what it was? Yeah, yeah, it was Mark Matsky. He's here for a feature-length discussion about the movie The Legend of Boggy Creek. This is a recording, this is a conversation that I have been looking forward to having for a long, long time. Mark is somebody who I've been, you know what, I'm going to say he's a friend. He's somebody that I've known through the potosphere for a long time. Got a chance to meet him in person a few years ago at Monster Bash, and ever since, you know, I feel like he's a friend. So I was really excited to have him here on the show to talk about this movie that is oh so important and special to him we're going to find out why it's special and important to him we're going to find out what i thought about it we're going to find out well when the first time was i saw it and <laughs> we're just going to talk about the movie and have a really good time i'm looking forward to it of course we'll play a round of the classic five with him as well we got a few other things going on this week too a few other bells and whistles and things that as we go along you'll hear but first i want to thank everybody for allowing me the time and space that i needed last week I don't want to get into it too much right now because it's still uh, kind of raw and it still brings a tear to my eye um, as I said in the like 90 second drop that I put out last week we had to say goodbye to uh, one of our cats uh, Smoke who was anywhere from 18 to 20 years old we're not entirely sure 100% Partly because we don't remember exactly the year we got him, but when we got him, he was five weeks old. So he was with us for a very, very long time, from a very young age. And what was supposed to be a wellness check, that's probably not the right phrase, but uh, a senior cat examination and some routine blood work turned into Smoke's last visit to the vet. And it... Um, it hit me pretty hard. Uh, you know, you know that I love my cats. I am a cat person, a cat daddy through and through. And we've had to say goodbye to cats over the years as they get older because unfortunately they just, you know, don't stick around as long as we do. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things about having an animal in your life, a, a fur baby, a pet, whatever you want to call them in your life is that you have to know and, and you have to accept that, that they're not going to be there forever. And, um, it's tough. It's really tough when something like that happens. And this one, it's not to say that I didn't love my other cats any less because man, you guys and gals know that I loved, loved everyone. And still do, I guess all of them. Um, you know, when Cat passed away, I even included him in a special graphic uh, with, uh, wearing a Hawaiian shirt and that sort of thing uh, on a podcast. Um, you know, Cinder was the first kitty we had, Lovey, and uh, Samantha, who was my grandparents' cat. When they passed, we took her and, you know, kept her in the family, so to speak. So, 
you know, I love them all so much. Just there's something about Smoke because we had him from when he was just a little baby boy uh, through his awkward, gangly teenage years to adult kitty to old man Moki. He was with us through a lot. And when we had to say goodbye to him, there was... There was a moment in the vet's office that really um, hit me pretty hard. Uh, I, I had taken him in, and when we found out, when I found out what was going on, I called Brenda, and she came in right away. Uh, as you guys and gals know, we're slowly separating and, and ultimately divorcing, but um, yeah, anyway... I was holding Smoke the way that I always held him, and that was basically cradling him. You know, most cats don't like to be held on their back, from what I understand. But this was something that I don't know if we trained him or he just came to accept it. But that's how we held him for his entire life, and he seemed to dig it and would purr and purr and purr. But when I was holding him, Brenda came close to me and put her arms around me, basically making a Smoke sandwich. His purr became the purr that I remember the most and I'll always always remember Um, as he got older his purring kind of um, got softer not nearly as pronounced and knowing now what was going on with him fluid building up in his body uh, where it shouldn't have been building up explains a lot to me about some of his behavior that I just didn't understand or recognize, of course, hindsight being 2020 and all, beating myself up about it, that sort of thing. Um, it it was painful, and it still is. And we we will be getting his uh, remains. You know, he had a private cremation. Uh, probably within a week or so, they're kind of backed up because of COVID. But what we'll be getting him, and I'll be bringing him home. And. Uh, he was so unhappy going to the vet. Uh, I talked to him the entire time. And, you know, eventually he kind of settled down because he knew I was there. And I told him, and, and not that I expect that they understand, you know, English. I know they don't. But I told Smoke that this was just a routine thing. Going to get some blood drawn. Going to check his weight and his vitals and all that. And we turn around afterwards, go home and watch a movie. And... and that's because Smoke basically lived in the bedroom, and the bedroom is where we had the Roku set up. And I had watched plenty of Roku movies back, you know, movies on Roku, YouTube, all sorts of stuff back there, cuddling with Smoke, and, you know, he was down. And I told him that's what we were going to do. And I'm still kind of hurt that I wasn't able to do that, um, even though I told him we were going to. So I think when I bring him home, I'll. I'll set myself up in the bedroom, pull up a movie, and, you know, put put him on a shelf uh, in, a, in a place of respect and prestige and, and watch a movie. I don't know what movie it would be. I don't think Smoke really cared what movie was on. I think he just liked having me there with him. So that all said, um, I really needed a week. To kind of recover, and I'm still 
trying to keep it together. Um, just, I miss him a lot, and I needed the time, and I really appreciate everybody giving me the time, the space, what needed, and the support, what really needed. So thank you. <sighs> so, um, it's just me and Wednesday here now, who is actually pacing back and forth by my feet. So why don't we go ahead and get on with the rest of the show right now. Uh, I want to tell you something. If you're hungry, you got to come on down to our concession stand because we got some good stuff down here. We got uh, hot dogs, only 25 cents. You get all the onions you want on them. We got hot buttered popcorn, 10 cents a box, and we got those crispy hot French fries. Yum, yum. I love them with ketchup, and they're only 25 cents an order, and a big, big old pile of them. Want to tell you something coming up soon. And that movie will be here in a few minutes at intermission time. We'll be for about the next 10 minutes. We're going to be out here uh, playing music and letting you come on down to the concession stand and use the restroom or whatever. But I want to remind you that uh, in about a week, I think it's uh, in nine days, in nine more days, we're having a very special movie coming out, and it's called A Man with X-Ray Eyes. You could hide nothing from him. He couldn't lose when he was playing cards. Women couldn't tell what he was looking at when he was looking at them, and he could see inside your car. The man with the X-ray eyes starring Ray Milan. And also on the same big bill that night, we got The Flesh Creeper starring Sonny Tufts. The theater's not responsible for you being scared to death. We also have The Horror of Party Beach, a weird atomic beast who lives under a motel it lives off of the blood and the eyeballs of people in that motel. It stars Eulabelle Moore and Inez Franklin. And you can re- uh, I want you to make sure that you do this tonight because uh, Mr. Duncan told me a minute ago that everybody's got to remember to put that speaker back on the post when they leave the theater. Anyone caught stealing a speaker will be prosecuted. I can't imagine why anybody would want to steal one of our speakers but some people do, and I guess they use them as car radio speakers. And during this intermission tonight, we're having a man that's guessing your weight here, raising money for the Triune Methodist Church here in Greenville, South Carolina. For only a nickel, he will tell you within five pounds of how much you weigh, and he will tell you within a year of how old you are. So come on down to the concession stand and donate a nickel, and he'll tell you how much you weigh. If he's wrong, You still have to leave the nickel, but it's just fun doing it. And uh, come on down and enjoy some of the great food we have down here, soft drinks, candy bars, and the food here at the concession stand is so good. You just, it just melts in your mouth. Everything down here. I love them barbecue sandwiches, delicious hot dogs, all kind of good thing, pizza. Let's have some more music before that movie starts back up. And uh, if, I want each and every one of you to drive safely when you go home tonight, but make sure you put the speakers back on the post when you get through. Here's more music for you. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. 
Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. If you're operating a fishing vessel, you might want to avoid a region referred to as the Ocean of Death. That's a lesson one crew learns the hard way in the 23rd episode of Ultra Q, entitled Fury of the South Sea which hit Japanese TV sets on June 5, 1966. A gigantic octopus known as Sudar acts as a lethal guardian of Compass Island, and after the sole survivor of the fishing boat washes up on the shore, he begins learning the story of the sea creature from a native girl that tends to his wounds. Meanwhile, Yuriko is assigned to cover the breaking story in the South Seas, with June and Ipe as her transportation and a linguist named Minami to serve as interpreter. Arriving at Compass Island, they receive an icy reception, which thaws considerably when June saves an island boy from Sudar's clutches. Although the ravenous octopus has killed many of their number, the islanders regard Sudar as a godlike protector, which results in considerable complications when the outsiders attempt to eliminate the monster. Fans of Japanese cinema will no doubt recognize leading man Akira Kubo as Yuzo, the surviving fisherman, who became a box office mainstay with roles in Gorath, Godzilla vs. Monster Zero, Son of Godzilla, Destroy All Monsters, and Matango, or Attack of the Mushroom People, Sanjiro, Throne of Blood, the list goes on and on. It is fairly obvious that special effects giant Eiji Tsuburaya was enamored of octopi, as Sudar joins the ranks of his cinematic cephalopods from King Kong vs. Godzilla, Frankenstein Conquers the World, and War of the Gargantuas. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting.
Together we will go where no man has ever gone, into the land of terror itself, where the Superman of evil is king. Let no man face my seven curses and reach the dragon's lair. Together we will dare the demons of the green flame. See the white hot face of the fiery rock. Enter the mammoth cave that closes behind you, where humans are trapped and tombed. Brave the volcanic inferno of the boiling crater. See the miracle of the magic sword. Battle the gigantic ogre. Gaze into the magic pool. See the enchanted beauty, enslaved by the master of the black arts. Meet Sybil, the weirdest witch who ever brewed up a cauldron of spells. I wonder what Sybil's cooking up. Witches of Hecate, black oven black, demons of shame, flesh on the rack. See the attempted rescue from the sorcerer's castle. See the terrors of the dungeon torture chamber. See the terrifying fate of the shrunken people cast under an evil spell by Lodak, greatest magician of them all. See the two-headed dragon of Lodak that no mortal ever faced and lived. You'll be thrilled to the hilt by the magic sword, none like it since the world began. A 2,000-year-old legend Hollywood waited until now to tell. The magic sword. From beyond the stars come the most fearsome monsters in the galaxy. Only Godzilla stands in their way in Godzilla on Monster Island. Is even Godzilla strong enough to defeat the invaders? Matching unbelievable strength. Exchanging incredible death-dealing rays. Don't miss Godzilla on Monster Island. Rated G. I think it's time to bring back the executive producer roll call here on Monster Kid Radio. This is the section where we thank the patrons of Monster Kid Radio that support the show at the Toho level or higher. Every month we do an executive producer roll call and it sounds a little something like this. Jim Nemeth, Myron Ramsey, Kevin Slick, Michael Herndon, Blaine Binkard, the United Nations of Horror, Anthony Wendell, Timothy Forbes, Mabuscast, Dennis Bryan Prather, Ted Roddy, Tom Greganis, James Moore, Gerald Green, Curtis, T. McKay, Don Evans, Alistair Hughes, Stephen Turek, Karen Joan Kohodek, Jeff Pollier, Tammy Anschutz, Paul Curtis, Kenny in Old Mexico, Jonathan Angarella, Charles Babbage, Terry Mount, Thomas Broussard, Jeffrey Owens, Mitch Gonzalez, Justin Jallo, Steve Sullivan, and Tracy and Scott Morris. If you'd like to hear your name read off during the monthly, and I mean at this time monthly, executive producer roll call, all you got to do is head over to patreon.com slash 
Monster Kid Radio and become a patron at the Toho level or higher. What is that? $3 a month. That's it. And then you become an executive producer of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks to everybody who supported the show, who's been a patron or is going to be a patron. And of course, everybody else who's listening to the show as well. Thank you so much. And speaking of the show, let's get back to it. to see as John Ford and Miriam C. Cooper present Mighty Joe Young, whose sensational exploits will startle you, thrill you, electrify you with hair-raising excitement and suspense. See Mighty Joe Young as he savagely resists capture in his native Africa. Joe! Joe! See the most fantastic relationship between beast and beauty, a mere girl mastering a primitive giant. See mighty Joe Young, enraged by Hollywood pranksters, destroy Filmland's swankiest nightclub on the fabulous Sunset Strip. Mighty Joe Young, the picture that's alive with the most sensational action thrills ever filmed. Mightier than King Kong, mighty Joe Young. There is nothing new under the sun, but under the small green fourth moon of Yavin, there is quite a different story. (laughs) Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present Star Wars. Luke Skywalker is on a daring mission to rescue a beautiful princess and all he needs is a little help from his friends. Han Solo, space pirate, and Chewie, his giant Wookiee, C-3PO, human relations cyborg, and his counterpart R2-D2, and the mysterious Jedi Knight. Never before in the history of movies has so much time and technology been spent just for fun. Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Hello there, Monster Kid Radio Hits. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We are going to continue our series looking at films covered in Famous Monsters with FM 36 from December of 1965. In this issue, we have the infamous first appearance of reprints. This is not including the yearbooks, which were best of unnumbered issues of nothing but reprints and started in 1963. Three films we have seen before were covered in FM 36. The Alligator People from issue 5, The Magic Sword from issue 13, and Return of the Fly from issue 5. Some Monster Kids complain about reprints in FM, but I understand and have learned to appreciate them. As a boy in the 70s, I didn't know a lot of what I was seeing were reprints, and some of my favorite issues were nothing but. At the time, it didn't bother me. FM was aimed at a certain age group, and the publishers figured after a few years, readers would grow out of being monster kids. The new kids following would love the reprints. For adult long-term collectors, it can be disappointing getting a rare old issue only to find you've seen all the articles before. But it wasn't originally published for us. It was made for 8 to 16-year-olds of the year it was put out. There was one classic that merited a film book in issue 36. 
The Mummy's Curse, used 11 pages and 11 photos to tell its story. Let's listen to a highlight. Nearby, in the forest, Karis is limping in his rotting rags when he senses the precious tana leaves. He turns, heading toward Professor Norman's house, and he comes to a fence. He mightily crashes through, continuing onward. In Norman's home, his house guest Amina is sleeping, but she begins to stir restlessly. As if in a trance, she rises from bed, going out of the room, and at the same time, Karis is approaching the house. Amina goes out on the porch, walking out in the yard, and she continues into the woods nearby. Only moments later, Karis arrives, stopping before the library of Norman, and he ominously steps to the door. In the room before him, Norman sits, and he seems to sense Karis's presence. As Norman turns in horror, Karis advances, his hand lifted at Norman's neck, and Norman moves back with fear spread across his face. Karis seizes his neck, choking him to death, and the ancient Egyptian lifts the urn aside, leaving, and nearby, Amina sees him. She immediately faints from the sight of the walking mummy, and as her arm lies on the grass, a scarab birthmark reveals itself. That is all for this look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Listen. Do you hear? It's coming back. Turning the screen into a buzzing, crawling, creeping nightmare of terror. This is the son of the original fly, daring to explore the forbidden science of transmigration that brought horrible death to his father. You look as if you've just seen a ghost, old man. It was the fly. Fear that will fasten its choking grip on you as his weird experiments spawn the twisted monstrosities of a living hell. The rat man whose hands and feet are changed to paws. The living corpse who rose from his coffin. And the return of the fly, seeking revenge with a thousand eyes. Smashing anything that stands in his way. Suppose he does come here. What if Philippe does not have the mind of a human, but the murderous brain of the fly? Then he will have to be destroyed. Dr. Jekyll, yearning for love and discovering on the eve of her marriage the monstrous inheritance that was her birthright of fear. Oh, I still shudder when I recall that face, like some perverted mask of evil out of a legend of horror. Then, then you saw him as Hyde? Once, at the very last, just before the mob caught him. They almost tore him to pieces. The villagers broke into this tomb and drove a stake through his heart. Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, terrified that she become the disfigured thing that was her father, a vampire drawing sustenance from bestiality. Got to get a stake. 
drive it through my heart and bury me beside my father. Well, do it! Do I have to kill myself? If you love me, please kill me! a lot of you reach out to me and say that you've appreciated the beta capsule review segment because it's given you an opportunity to learn more about or just watch for the first time ultra q and eventually we'll be getting into ultraman and however many more series as long as mark matsky's got the strength for it and the, and the <laughs> commitment for it uh, but in the meantime i've got him here on the show now so I want to thank you, Mark, personally, on behalf of everybody here who's been enjoying the Beta Capsule Review segments, and welcome you to the show. Oh, it's uh, been a real pleasure to, you know, to hear that and to know that there's people checking out the Ultraverse, as it were. It's really exciting, and you'll have your hands full <laughs> if you like what you see. <laughs> there's plenty more where that came from, and it's almost overwhelming, but that, that's why I wanted to start at the beginning. And just give people a feel for how these shows came together because it's a fascinating story in itself. It really is the production of these films or these series uh, and, and how they got started and the why and what they were using from Godzilla to begin with to kind of borrow suits and all that. Yes, it's fascinating to me. And to see the crossover between talent at Toho and Subaraya Productions and just to see all of that come together. And it's just fun stuff to watch, too. So, I mean, you got it all. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that is so striking, and I think it's come through already in the first 21 episodes, is just the crossover talent, like you said. Mm -hmm. You know, where the Tsuburaya was deeply connected in the studio system. So he was able to get cinema quality artists and monster suits and the acting talent and put it all together in a a TV show. It just, you can see why it was dynamite for Japanese viewers in the 60s because it was like movies on TV. The quality was so high. And they're doing it every week, a new kaiju monster a week. Yes. That's mind blowing to me. And it just sounds amazingly fun to do, too. <laughs> oh, no doubt. I mean, who has it? I, if you love these movies and these TV shows, then, you know, it stands to reason that you've done something like this yourself, you know, as a kid, at least where you've made a city and then destroyed it, <laughs> but, you know, made your Lincoln log house and then blew it up, you know, as a monster or something. And, and that can translate then into other creativity as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always asking on the show, you know, why is it the fans of this stuff want to make more of this stuff? And I've never had anybody say because they want to break up a Lincoln Log City. Yeah, That's, right. <laughs> but but really, I mean, there's just something cathartic and fun about mm -hmm. that. You know, I've talked on the show about how I'm getting back into Lego. I'm an adult fan of Lego. And mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I want to do someday, I don't have the talent for it yet, but I really, really want to make a Lego 
Ultraman oh. to scale. I want to take the Lego <laughs> minifig and I want to figure out the, the dimension or the, the proportions from the minifig to the size of the actual actor, do all the math, make it, you know, I know it's going to be huge, but man, I would love to do that and put it in a cityscape and you'll break everything up and all that. Oh, man. Oh, that'd be a blast. That would be spectacular. Yeah. And even a little uh, minifigure size beta capsule, that would oh. be the best. That, oh man! Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and you know what else you could ultimately do? It could be a, a science patrol headquarters <gasps> building. That would be a nice little addition to the set. Oh, Mark, you're giving me all sorts of ideas. I know. <laughs> uh, as if I don't have enough on my plate right now. Yeah, <laughs> right. Maybe. Maybe we should stop that because <laughs> I could keep going. <laughs> oh, man. Um, my buddy Scott, a few years ago, found some custom Ultraman minifigs. Now, they're minifig size, but they're the, like the Ultraman and Ultra 7, uh, a couple of the monsters in minifig size. And mm. I mean, it's, yeah, that's what gave me the idea. It's like, I want to take that, but I want to blow it up to what it would really be. <laughs> oh, man. So awesome. And then I won't, I won't even mention the ships then. You know, I, you got to have at least one of the cars because oh, those yes. cars are awesome. Yes, no doubt. <laughs> Do one of the Ultra 7 cars. I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what are, what are you doing to me, Mark? I don't know. <laughs> we, should right. be, we should be submitting these ideas to Lego. You know, they have you know, that program, don't they, where you they do. can submit designs and if you get enough votes... It becomes a thing. And you actually get like 10% of the pay so or of the money they make from it. So, yeah, it's it's a job, really. We're not just playing with Lego. We're actually trying to make, you know, just, yes. I don't know who I'm trying to justify it to. I just want to play with my Lego. Yeah. That's good enough. Uh, I, <laughs> oh, man. You know, I know that right before I hit record, I said we should probably switch gears because we're going to talk about Ultraman all day. <laughs> yeah. And then I immediately bring up Ultraman. Mm-hmm. That's all right. That's all right. It's very nice to be able to talk to somebody who can name Red King, who knows what you're talking about. Right. That's refreshing. Red King's the man, I'm telling you. Yes. Red King's awesome. What are we talking about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about The Legend of Boggy Creek, which is uh, one of the iconic films when you think about like cryptozoology, Bigfoot films, that sort of thing. And I knew that you were a fan of it because you've mentioned it on multiple podcasts <laughs> over mm-hmm. the years as being something that is pretty special to you and, and influential to you. And and I got to ask, I think I know the answer because I think you've talked about it on your show, at least one of the shows, but for the listeners, what came first for you, your interest in cryptozoology and Bigfoot and that sort of thing, or Kaiju? Wow. That's, boy, I have to kind of think about that. I think they're inextricably linked in a way because it was at the same time that I was watching Ultraman for the first time on TV mm-hmm. in, you know, uh, Detroit area, syndicated television, was the same time that I was watching Saturday morning shows and Bigfoot and Wild Boy was a show as part of the Sid and Marty Croft hour. And so those two strands kind of went together. And I think that's why I had to stop and think about it is because they were both sort of born at the same time because also, you know, I was seeing a Godzilla on TV. We had a great horror host in the Detroit area at that time is on channel 55, I think it was. And I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but 
we got a steady dose of Godzilla and King Kong, of course, Mighty Joe Young. And I was very fortunate in that we were also getting Godzilla movies in the theater in the Detroit area at that time. It was a big enough market that I got to see Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla and Godzilla on Monster Island or Godzilla versus Gigan is Toho's new title for it. But I, I saw those with my dad in the theater. And then the third little strand to add to that in 77 was Star Wars. So <laughs> it's like this perfect mix of all these things that were really above the fold, you know, in 70s culture. Mm -hmm. So what that resulted in as far as cryptozoology is concerned is my next move after watching Bigfoot and Wild Boy as a kid was... Now, this is a cool show, and I'd love to be Wild Boy and run around <laughs> with Bigfoot and solve crimes and stuff. Is there anything to this? Is there really something like Bigfoot, or is this just a show? And I'm pretty sure my mom or my dad helped me. We went to the a local public library, and I found a book called On the Track of Bigfoot by a juvenile literature author named Marion T. Place. And I started reading it and I couldn't believe it because it took the topic seriously. And fortunately at the time, that book in particular gave the strong impression that Bigfoot, if he exists, which he probably does, <laughs> according to the book, it's okay because he's out there in the Pacific Northwest. So Northern California, Oregon, Washington, it's out there and I'm in Michigan. so. You know, you can deal with that. That's fine. But so I devoured that book cover to cover. What I was amazed by was in about a year's time, she came out with another book. And the title is Bigfoot All Over the Country. Uh -oh. And I thought, <laughs> exactly. I thought, oh boy, it's not that simple. And what that book proceeded to do is just detail the fact that the, this creature, whatever it is, or whatever species of creature this might be, there have been reported sightings not only in the Pacific Northwest, but as the title says, all over the country. And so that gave me a lot more to think about, but I was hooked. You know, that was really it. And it was through the reading of books largely, and then, you know, sort of luckily stumbling upon in search of. Uh, narrated by Leonard Nimoy, there were a number, or a handful, I should say, of Bigfoot and Abominable Snowman-themed episodes of that show, which also, you know, made my eyes go wide because that treated it very seriously as something that was possible. Mm -hmm. And from there, it really was uh, a scholastic book by an author named Elwood Bauman, called Monsters and Mysteries of North America that about halfway through started talking about this film called The Legend of Boggy Creek and described what was in the film and the fact that it was not, again, not Pacific Northwest, but this was in uh, southwestern Arkansas. And what the little article promised is that this was a movie that recreated sightings and even on the soundtrack had sounds of a real Bigfoot creature. And that sent me on a quest, you know, to see the film. 
uh, the only problem with that is that we were stuck in an era right then. You'd have to luck into seeing it on TV because VHS was just in its infancy and there, no one was putting out Legend of Boggy Creek on VHS at the time anyway. And the miracle of all miracles is that not long after we got our first VCR, I was scanning the TV schedule as monster kids are wont to do uh, from a certain era. And, <laughs> yep. and, and there on our local independent station uh, coming on at like two or three in the morning was The Legend of Boggy Creek. And so I set that VCR and it all worked perfectly. And, uh, you know, finally in the late 80s, I was able to finally watch The Legend of Boggy Creek. So it's sort of a long winding road. I, my own hunt for the creature, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and it's really kind of influenced a lot of what you've done over the years with, you know, the monster podcasting that you're doing. You're involved with small town monsters now, which I think is just incredibly cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it has certainly been super influential and it, it does shape the flavor of what we're doing as far as a, a documentary or a docudrama approach with recreations and so forth. And especially, I think, the, the one feature above all else is the fact that we like to actually go to places where various sightings have, have happened, allegedly, and you get a sense of the place. You know, and as the, the title of the company or the name of the company suggests, you know, we are as, as much interested in the small town where these things take place as the monster stories themselves. And there's always an intriguing story to tell about what a, a series of monster sightings can do to a location in the, you know, in the United States, especially. And, and if those locations or towns embrace that legend and that history, it can be kind of important to that region. So it, it's, in many ways, set me on a, a journey as well in sort of a creative fashion. For people who don't know, uh, check out smalltownmonsters.com. It's uh, a production company that focuses on telling stories like The Legend of Boggy Creek. But like you said, you'd really try to focus more on or as much on, you know, the area and that sort of thing. You're not just recreating a sighting. You know, I feel like you get a lot more out of it than that. Some of it's available on Amazon Prime, I believe. I think you can stream some of it, right? Correct. And Correct. then you can also pick up the DVDs or it looks like Blu-rays now are in stock mm -hmm. as well. Yes, there's uh, DVDs and Blu-rays and also uh, things are going on and off of YouTube as well. Um, oh. and, and that's nice too. Like right now, to this point, we've released 11 more or less feature length documentaries. And then we've had three series come out. Uh, one of those is On the Trail of Champ, which is a multi-part series about a lake monster in Lake Champlain. And that's on YouTube right now. Anyone can watch that at any time. We're moving things over to YouTube gradually. You know, it's, it's such a learning process because we are just completely independent, you know, and it's, it's truly a group of about four or five, six people at the core doing this as a, a passion project and learning as we go. And the, the interesting thing is for, especially for my friend, Seth, who is really his company mm -hmm. and he 
wife run the show on the creative and the financial end. And in what we've been able to release, you know, so far they've been able to make a living at it, which is lightning in a bottle as far as that stuff goes. And we're just trying to keep branching out so that that can continue and we can keep telling the stories that we want to tell. I mean, that's living the dream right there, right? To, to, to find the creative pursuit that you adore, that you love, and be able to make a living at it. That, that's the dream. Absolutely and, uh, right. Yes. You know, I, I went into the wrong creative path because <laughs> <path laughs> there's no money in podcasting, but, but I totally... <laughs> I don't yeah. know if that's really fair to say or not. I love what I do. I love what I do. I love it. But I do think that's really cool that they're able to focus on that because once you're able to focus on it, you can just make it better and better and keep learning and learning and moving on. And wow, it's it's awesome. I mean, Small Town Monsters, you've got a book, you've got the DVDs, you've got the Blu-rays. I know that you're involved. I know that your son gets involved with a lot of it mm -hmm. too. Andy gets involved with a lot of it. If you guys ever make it out to the Pacific Northwest looking for our Bigfoot, look me up. I'd love to help out. Oh, very nice. I, I haven't seen him myself, but, you know, I'll, I'll go tromping around in the woods with you to try to find him. You know, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, it's on the wish list for sure. And, you know, we have one of our series on the Trail of Bigfoot. You know, we did do sort of kind of like a madcap crazy dash through the Pacific Northwest in 2018. We were out there very briefly, oh. uh, largely to go to a conference in Washington. But um, we made it to Mount St. Helens. Oh, wow. And we're, we're at the Ape Canyon Trailhead there and then up to the Olympic Peninsula and back and just in like four or five days. So it was just scratching the surface. But that's that's on the wish list to get back out there again. Uh, I'm serious, man. I, I would love to uh, meet up with you guys and, and help out with whatever I can. And I promise not to be a nuisance on set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I have no doubt about that. You know the drill. <laughs> <laughs> you know how these things go. But it's so fun because we've started this other thing too, real quick. It's Small Town Monsters Squad, and it's behind the scenes stuff that people, you can, it's a subscription service basically. But the thing that's so funny about it is that it's truly pulling back the curtain. So it's like it, it, you're, we're live streaming shoots basically. And people get to see just how crazy it is. You know, we, we have this little, sort of formula that we follow where we, you know, we take the subject seriously and ourselves not at all. And I think that's what people are getting to see is the not at all part where we just goof off and have fun. And that's, <laughs> you know, that makes it all worthwhile, I think. And, and it's really brought the team together as, as a kind of family, really. It, it, we're, it's hard to put into words, but it's, you, you work with somebody on a shared passion like this and, you know, you get drawn into all different areas of life. Sure. It's amazing. Yeah. No, I, I've had that happen with various projects I've been on before, and I totally understand. And I have a feeling a good chunk of the listeners right now are nodding along. It's like, yep, yeah, that's what happens. I get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Small Town Monsters Squad because I just stumbled across that on the oh. website while we've been talking here. So that's yeah. awesome. That's great. Yeah. Uh, that launched a couple months back? Yeah, it did. November 1st, I okay. think, was the, the first day. And What's cool about that, too, is that we're creating content just for that. Our prime uh, special effects artists, uh, his name is Santino Vitale, and he, he's amazing. Uh, some of our stuff that he's created, like in Bray Road Beast, which is about a series of dogman sightings that have oh. taken place in southeastern Wisconsin, okay. of all the places in the world. Uh, he created 
a number, a wide variety of special effects for that film on a shoestring budget that are phenomenal. And I would put those right next to anything, you know, that you would see in a Hollywood production, actually, as or like it's like a Disney film at the beginning where he has this animation coming through a window and then a book on a stand opens up and it's all handmade. That part of it's not CG. It's it's stuff that he sculpted and created. So long story short is that he is now in the director's seat for a squad exclusive series called On the Trail of Hauntings. And we're going around to places largely in the Ohio area to begin with that have a reputation for being haunted. And it's more loosey-goosey and sort of run and gun and showing more of the team in action. The way that Santino described sort of the concept of it was like some of the paranormal shows that you see on TV meets Parks and Rec. (laughs) And that's really sort of the flavor of it. Uh, So we were in, in a little town called Hanoverton, Ohio, that has um, some places with a like a supernatural reputation, a graveyard and, and a, a tavern and stuff. And most recently, I wasn't able to go on this shoot, unfortunately, but they went to the uh, Mansfield Reformatory where uh, Shawshank Redemption was filmed. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, and they were given free reign of the place from like 2 p.m. through as long as they wanted to stay. And just got footage and interviewed people who have had experiences. It's sort of, I guess, an evolution, you know, now with the sort of expanding platforms that we're on, then that also frees up people from within the team to become involved in different ways. So like Santino is now directing and, you know, we're getting other directors involved with other projects so that, you know, we can just continue to multiply the stuff that goes out and, uh, hopefully finds an audience. Right on. And now you mentioned Ohio and that's kind of sort of where I met you, not really in person, but through Monsterland, Ohio, which was uh-huh. a blog and the podcast was called that too, right? Yeah, it was Monsterland, Ohio was the blog and Monsterland, Ohio radio was the podcast that I did with my son, Andy. That started sometime in 2014 and it was a uh, on one hand, it was a reaction to my getting into podcasting because of meeting uh, my friend Seth, and we started a Bigfoot podcast together called Sass What, and <laughs> that was so much fun that I thought this could really be something that you know my son and I could do because we consume all this media together. We love monster movies and Ultraman and and all these shared experiences. Let's why not give it a try? And it just would be fun. And it found a little bit of an audience, you know, um, and, and people seemed to enjoy it. And part of what happened, you know, just naturally is Andy kind of grew up, in this case, behind the microphone. It was really cool because it created some opportunities for us to talk to some really awesome people. And one of those episodes I'll never forget was we were able to sit down with the gentleman who did the Abbott and Costello tribute show at Monster Bash. And they were kind enough to sit down. And I think it was about an hour's worth of interview that we did together. And I think we were blown away by them because they were so exacting in their recreations of Abbott and Costello's routines. And they just had the spirit of it down pat. 
And I think they were blown away by Andy because he knew he knew those routines cold. They could go back and forth doing parts in the routine because, you know, we had really watched a lot of Abbott and Costello by that point. And, you know, Andy really struck up especially a good relationship with Joe, who played uh, Lou Costello. And, uh, you know, we were extremely saddened by his passing. And it really left a hole in the Monster Bash experience for us. But, you know, we've stayed in touch with Bill and it's been good to see him at the bash. And it's just, that's the type of thing. And I, you know, far better than I do, but by getting involved and doing a little something to participate in the wider community, it just opens door after door just to meet these amazing people. And, you know, when you have a sincere interest in what they're doing, then that's often reciprocated. And it's just so, it's so cool. It's so much fun. Tom Savini, the special makeup effects artist, he's always at Monster Bash because it's in mm-hmm. his, his neighborhood. There's a documentary that he did back in the 80s where he's uh, with Fangoria magazine called Scream Greats, where he's talking about the special effects and how he did it and where he came from. And he makes a comment in there where he says that he's learned, and I'm probably paraphrasing, he's learned that by volunteering for everything that you can, the more you do, the more you get to do. And I've always taken that to heart. And it's probably part of the reason why I'm always spreading myself way too thin. Because I'm yeah. always trying to do everything. Because the more I do, the more I get to do. And I get to do this. Mm-hmm. And now I can do that. And then, But it really, it really is true. I mean, the more you get involved with things, the more you get to be involved in even bigger and better things. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. I think this community, the Monster Batch community, the classic horror fan community, the Kaiju community, it's been amazing to see so many people do so many amazing things that inspire me and, and inspire others and drive us to do even bigger and better things, hopefully inspiring somebody else. And then it just has a big cycle and I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. That quote is amazing. That's really, that really resonates because it's true. Yep. It, I, you know, I think anyone who's given that a try knows from experience that that's, that really is how it works. And like, just an example, there's somebody, a, a dear friend of mine that I met he lives in Lancaster, Ohio. I didn't know that he lived in Ohio until I met him in Chicago at G-Fest, the Godzilla <laughs> convention. Yeah. And we struck up a friendship, stayed in touch. And then uh, when Seth decided to make his first movie uh, called Minerva Monster about a, an Ohio-based Bigfoot case, he asked me, do I know any artists? And as a matter of fact, I did. I knew my buddy, Matt Harris from Lancaster, Ohio. He had done uh, numerous uh, works of art for G-Fest. He had been on numerous G-Fan covers with his art. And I said, yeah, in fact, I do know somebody like that. And let me put you in touch with him. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, his artwork has appeared in every Small Town Monsters movie ever since. Oh, that's (laughs) great. You know, and it's just so, so much fun. It's so rewarding to be able to be a part of making those kind of connections. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, Monsterland, Ohio, the Sasquatch podcast and all that, those are no longer active, but you have been doing something else in the podcasting space. It's kind of on a little break right now. Is that right? Oh yeah, it is. Yeah. I sort of intentionally split it into seasons so that I could just take some time off, however much time in between that I, I needed to, but the show is called Monster Study Group, and it is just a a super 
detailed look in the first season anyway at you know the stuff that i just absolutely adore which is the japanese giant monsters and superheroes and that's been a lot of fun i got in touch with jd lees who is the publisher of g fan magazine because uh, you know i wanted to do something a little bit different than simply talk about my opinions of movies because i mean that that's one thing but i i wanted to give a little bit different spin on it as the bottom line and so i asked jd because i've i've worked with him a little bit in the uh, convention of g fest i said look i'm i'm interested in doing this podcast and what i would love to do is read some of the articles from past g fans is that okay <laughs> figuring that the worst he could say is no. And then I just say, okay, I'll go in a different direction. But he said, yes. So I was able to, you know, not only talk about the films, but really uh, bring back to light some of the most in-depth study on these films that I'm aware of and bring back to the forefront the writing of people like uh, Peter Brothers and yeah. Richard Pusateri and guys, you know, who have gone on to do some pretty big things in uh, the kaiju community. You know, Steve Rifle, Ed Godshashevsky, who put out that amazing Ishiro Honda biography. You know, these are all articles that are sitting in, uh, you know, past issues of G-Fan. And unless you happen to own those copies, it's great work that you'll probably never be exposed to. So that was really the thought process behind what I wanted Monster Study Group to be is very much the study end of that, taking that pretty seriously, but having a lot of fun with it at the same time. I've enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to the next season uh, for whenever you get that up and running. No pressure, but I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. Yeah, uh, G Fan does have. Uh, a pretty long history, uh, lots of material in there. I've had Mike Bogue on the show who's written oh, for G-Fan. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I need to have him back on. It's been a long time. But yeah, I've had a lot of people on the show that at least are aware of or, or subscribe to or have been to G-Fest or anything like that. I've never been to G-Fest myself. And someday, it, it's on my bucket list. It's on my bucket list. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear because you would love it. It's Monster Bash, but with just a little extra juice i guess <laughs> oh no <laughs> i mean the uh, you, have you seen have you seen on youtube it's the closing credits to um godzilla king of the monsters from 2019 where they did a uh, bear mccrary did his own version of blue oyster cults godzilla right and there's a video from g fest that shows the sing-along that spontaneously erupted oh wow at the end of that and, and that that shows you just in about three minutes what essentially the entire G-Fest experience is like. It's just high octane, you know, everybody loving Godzilla and Toho and Ultraman. And it just is, it's wonderful. I really hope you can get out there. And again, a, a huge selling point is being able to see these films in the way that they were intended, Yeah, which is to say on the, the giant screen, in a real, you know, sort of classic old movie palace. And it's, it's wonderful. So 
whatever you can do to get there, my friend. <laughs> Between uh, your podcast over the years talking about it, and I mean, I'm right out here in Portland with Kyle. So between yeah. your your guys' show and what Kyle has done over Kyle Young, that is over at the Kaiju Cast when that was still a thing, mm-hmm. uh, I, I hear all about it. I hear the panels. <laughs> I, I hear about the experiences of just walking the sales floor. I. Mm. Mm-hmm. someday someday yeah and you know you mentioned mike bogue one of the most memorable things about g fest in in my past is he asked me to be on a panel with him oh awesome and so i i helped out with that panel i didn't have a whole lot to add because mike is mike and <laughs> he, he's just incredible with his wealth of knowledge and then the other people on the panel knew far more than i did but what I had in my favor is I brought my laptop and I was able to show clips of the movies that Mike was talking about. So I was sort of the AV geek of the group and that was fine. You know, I, did, <laughs> I really didn't need more than that. I was up there with some, you know, legit authors and then there was me. So at least I made myself useful, but <laughs> Mike is so, so much fun to talk to and uh, a gifted author. I really love his book, Apocalypse Then on, at, on McFarland. Excellent stuff. You say legit authors, but Mark, you've been publishing things like Nostalgia Digest and a few things like that too. So, I mean, come yeah. on, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I still have, I don't know. I, I look up to these other guys so much. I, yeah, the, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I, I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. There's still a pinch me quality to the whole thing, really. <laughs> and I think that's important to hold on to too, you know, mm-hmm. to keep that sense of wonder and like, oh my gosh, I get to do this or that now. Yeah. You know, so. Very cool. I do want to talk about The Legend of Boggy Creek, but we've been chatting for about half an hour, and I want to make sure we get in a round of The Classic Five. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. The Classic Five! You have to hold me to this. I need to be decisive, because typically I would hem and haw over some of these decisions. So I'm just going to try to pull the trigger quickly on some of these. All right. Well, there are no wrong answers. Okay. No no, no pressure, (laughs) no wrong answers. You're you're good. (laughs) All right. Okay. All right. So for listeners who don't know, the Classic Five is a game that we play here on the show. There is a literal deck of cards right here in my hands right now. And each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question on them. They're all about the things that we love, classic monster movies. There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to kind of get to know people a little bit better, call it an icebreaker. We just call it a good time here on the show. And I'm ready to play a round of it with you, Mark. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. All right. First, oh, I did not do this on purpose. This comes right off the top and it's actually part of our Kaiju expansion deck. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. What Kaiju would make a good sports team mascot? Mm. Well, let's see. I think, I think Rodan would make a great mascot. Oh, Um, okay. You know, and sort of the spirit of like uh, Thunderbirds or or just a, it's got a great profile. It implies speed and power and all that sort of good stuff. So I'd go with Rodan, I think. I want more Rodan out in the world, so I'm on board. I like it. All right, card number two. This is from the core deck. Willis O'Brien or Ray Harryhausen? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Wow. (laughs) Well, I guess I would go with uh, Ray. I'd go with Ray, and that's largely on the strength of my... Great appreciation for Mighty Joe Young. You know, I just have an undying love for that film and for the character of Joe. Okay. And how Ray, you know, gave him emotions. You know, of course, there wouldn't be a Ray probably without Willis, but 
I think, you know, Ray's output and just the scope of his imagination, we're very fortunate, I think, now to live at a time where, you know, thanks to publishing, we've got just a treasure trove of books that show like the breadth of his artistic ability. There's a book that I just picked up within the last year. It's The Lost Films of Ray Harryhausen. Yes. And that just is staggering. Uh, it's like <laughs> all the ideas, just the ideas that he had that didn't end up on the screen, but that were bouncing around in his head. Uh, just a, a wonderful guy. And I, I sort of regret that I was just probably 10 years too late to sort of the conference scene where he was still making appearances and so forth. So I'll go with Ray. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's a good answer. All right, so, so the next card actually comes from the Monster Batch exclusive, but I'm going to broaden it here a little bit. So the question on the card is, what is your favorite movie that you've seen at a Monster Bash? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch mm. it up. Between Monster Bash and G-Fest, what's the favorite movie you've seen on the screen, on the big screen? Like, what was the most important or, or yeah. the most impactful yeah. experience? Okay, that good. That, that that's I can answer that pretty quickly. It was uh, the original Godzilla from 1954, the Japanese version uh, shown on actual film. It was not a Blu-ray. It was a film that was brought over personally by Akira Takarada, who was in attendance at the, at the viewing. So um, that was probably just the most special set of circumstances uh, under which to watch that movie. And it just looked so brilliant on the big screen. And just to know that Mr. Takarada was there yeah, and, and sitting not too far, you know, probably like 10 rows in front of me uh, oh, wow. was, was just unforgettable. But what I will also say is that I would have to really sit and count because it, it'd be like 10 or 11 years worth of films. But there aren't many G-Fest movies that I haven't already seen hmm. by the time that I have gotten there. But the thing I love about Bash is that it's exposed me to a ton of movies that I never saw. And probably the one that stands out in that regard is Kaltiki. Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess. To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. <laughs> the immortal monster the first time i saw kaltiki was at monster bash on the thursday night you know when nothing else is happening and they're just you know showing random films and kaltiki came on and i was just i don't know i i didn't know what to expect i think that was part of it i had the most vague sense of what the film was about and i just was completely drawn into it so much so that when uh the Blu-ray came out, you know, I had to have it because I had such fond memories of seeing that at Bash for the first time. That's awesome. I'm trying to imagine myself being in that room at Monster Bash watching Kaltiki uh, because sometimes that room can get a little like stuffy, a little, little warm mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and trying to imagine Kaltiki in that environment. It just seems like it would add to the atmosphere because oh, that movie sure. is a little uncomfortable anyway in spots. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a blast. Card number four. Who else could have or should have played a mad scientist? Hmm. Could have played a mad scientist. Boy, I, I think, let's see. This is this is a test. Uh-oh. 
Oh, okay. You know what? I don't, here's one. I don't know that he ever played this role specifically, but uh, what about Dwight Fry? He's always been the assistant or he's been sort of the victim, but I don't think that he's ever been like the, the head mad scientist who's causing all of the disruption. So I'm going to go with Dwight Fry. All of his performances that I've ever seen have been compelling. I think he could really, he could hit that switch from sort of Jekyll to Hyde and be pretty fun. He was an underrated actor. Didn't mm. you know, get the appreciation I feel like he deserved while he was still working. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Let him graduate from assistant to, to yeah. mad scientist. I want to see yes. that. Yes. Move wow. him up. <laughs> there you go. All right. Final card. Card number five. Bert I. Gordon or Roger Corman? Wow. I think I'm going to go with Corman. And I think the reason why is that, you know, Corman, oh man, that's so hard. (laughs) That is so hard. But Corman, I mean, he had a number of pictures that I go back to like over and over again, I guess. And part of that I I think is like the dinosaur themed movies Mm. could potentially be why. Okay. But then, you know, there's, um, uh, you know, uh, oh, gee, I don't know. <laughs> That's the hardest one I've ever heard, I think. <laughs> well, I'll throw you a lifeline here. Bird Eye Gordon has been to Monster Bash. I don't think Roger Corman has, has he? No. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we were there when, when Bird Eye Gordon was there. We got to hear him talk. Yeah. Andy bought his book, I think, and had him oh, sign it. Right on. Yeah. Whew. Yeah, no, I, I think Corman... Um, I mean, he's, I, I had a chance to meet him uh, at the Lovecraft Film Festival here a couple years back. And man, he is still with it. He is still sharp and hmm. ready to tell you stories about movies he made 50, 60, 70 years ago and yeah. hasn't missed a beat. And it's amazing. But then I've also met Bird Eye Gordon at the Bash and to hear him tell the stories that he has to tell, it's also amazing. So I don't know how I'd answer it either. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Here, in this primitive river-bottom wilderness in southern Arkansas, along with deer, duck, crane, and beaver, lurks a creature that walks upright. Whether it is a man, a monster, or a myth, no one really knows. What we do know is the people around Falk, Arkansas, say they have seen such a creature nearly 250 times since 1954. And that this creature, whatever it is, emits one of the most terrifying sounds ever recorded. Legend of Boggy Creek. Uh, and I told you earlier that I had not seen this movie before today. When we started talking about covering this film, I thought, I'm going to hold off. I'm going to wait. I'm going to watch it brand new, fresh for when I talk to Mark. But you've seen it over and over and over again, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Yes. Um, yeah, it's true. <laughs> you remember the first time you saw this thing? Was that through television? Is that? It was through television. The TV yep. thing? Okay. Yep. Yeah. And have you ever had a chance to see it on the big screen? Uh, no, I haven't. 
and you know it has been rescreening as of late because there's been a, a beautiful restoration mm-hmm. that's been recently done and as you're well aware and it just hasn't been in a location that i could get to but uh, no i haven't seen it on a big screen i had heard that it was supposed to go to monster bash and but then everything with the pandemic mm-hmm. and everything kind of shut everything down right uh, which is unfortunate but mm-hmm. Uh, I think like the director's daughter was going to be there was the plan and yeah. And the whole thing, which would have been phenomenal. It would have been, uh, and it would it'd be, been. Uh, you know, the audience there, I think would really appreciate what they're seeing. There is a little bit of crossover, not just with like you and Andy, but there are other people there as well. You know, the, the, the MUFON people and, and right. ufology and all that. There's some representation there as well. And I've always found that interesting to find that crossover because while I'm not out there making docudramas or looking for Bigfoot myself, I do find this all fascinating too. And I'm a monster kid. So yeah, of course it, it goes hand in hand. Yeah. And that's neat. I mean, the, we've gotten to know those folks pretty well, you know, that uh, we've met at Bash and the, the MUFON group mm-hmm. and Stan Gordon, who actually presents at Bash each year. Yeah. Uh, you know, and to the degree that he's worked with us on a number of small town monsters projects. Oh, yeah. His, his vaults are vast as far as number of reports and things that he has personally investigated. So it's it's really, really cool that there's another one of those connections that would not have happened or, or didn't happen outside of the community. You know, it's because of the going to the convention, getting involved and, and meeting and talking and and those things just take on an organic life of their own. And, yeah. and Stan was has been a part of that now with us. Right on. For The Legend of Boggy Creek, obviously you're a fan. I'm going to tell you, I'm a fan too. I really had a good time watching it. All right. I, I posted on Facebook that I was about to watch it for the first time, and I got some, you know, mixed responses <laughs> from people. Oh, I'm sure. But I found myself really enjoying it because I went into it knowing what it was. It wasn't, you know, a straight up documentary. It wasn't somebody mm-hmm. out there in the field saying, hey, I found Bigfoot. Here it is. It was a lot of recreations, a lot of in search of style presentations of the little stories of all the things that happened around that town regarding this monster that this Mm -hmm. is Bigfoot thing that may or may not live in the wilds outside of the town of Falk. And I found that interesting. I I did struggle with one part and that's with the cat, but I think everybody knows that I'm a cat person. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That would be impactful. But you don't see anything. It's just you hear it, and then it's like, oh, no, come on, man. And then later on, you also hear about a dog. Uh, Some disembodied voice is telling us that it got my dog, and when I see it, I'm going to... I'm going to get it myself. And that'll be all sure. she wrote. It was like, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That's right. Yep. That's right. It is a series of vignettes of life in this town. When people see this thing in the woods and nobody ever really catches it. There's really no photography mentioned or anything. It's just their encounters being told to us in the film itself. It's like three or four different encounters, a little stories in there, right? Yeah. At least. I mean, it's sort of anchored by the one at the end. Yeah, which which is by far the the most developed of sort of the set pieces, but it is it's throughout. You know, you have um, in most cases, it's either uh, an actual newspaper account or a, a word of mouth story that the director 
and the screenwriter heard while they were investigating things in Falk. And in some cases, it's the synthesis of a couple stories kind of thrown together for dramatic purposes. Sure. But by and large, I mean, they were just bringing to life the, the type of stories that were being widely circulated in the early 70s in this little town in southwestern Arkansas called Falk. And the main thing that seems odd about that, of course, is that it's certainly not the Pacific Northwest, and you don't think of it as a, a mountainous area, and it, it isn't. Uh, but what it does have going in its favor, you know, as far as the plausibility of a hidden creature is concerned, is that it's just acre after acre of river bottom and swampland. And having been there myself uh, in 2016, you know, I can tell you that, you know, you can stand on some of those country roads and look into the woods on either side and you can't see a dozen feet in because it's so thick with scrub and trees and undergrowth. So it, it paints this picture, you know, right from the beginning, you know, the opening scene, there's that iconic black screen with the writing, you know, that says based on true events, then you're right into the swamps. And I think that's one of the things that the film does so effectively is the sense of place. You know, it starts almost like an educational video almost, you know, you've got the river otters floating around and the turtles and you hear all kinds of frogs and so forth. And it sort of lulls you into this sort of Southern hot and humid setting. And then it launches you into the Bigfoot Falk monster story, you know, with this roar of the monster and the remembrances of the child figure in it, who evidently was played by the director's son. It was, uh, oh, okay. That, and that was the character of this film entirely was, um, to my knowledge, there were no professional actors at all in this film. It, it was all, uh, local people either playing themselves or playing somebody in town, recreating their story, usually because those people would share the story with the director, but they would, they shied away from being on camera. Okay. So somebody else was willing, you know, of course, to be on camera. And sure. so they would tell their story for them. And in many cases, the person that's named is in fact who you see on screen. For example, um, towards the beginning, there's an older gentleman named Smokey Crabtree. Uh, that's really who that is. And uh, his son, Travis Crabtree, who has the song uh, named after him, that really was Travis Crabtree. There's other people in the film whose names are changed, but I think that that adds to this feeling of, holy cow, this is really happening to these people. Because it, in some cases, it really is the people who had the experience. And if not, it's somebody just like that. You know, you never, I, I never get the sense in Legend of Boggy Creek that somebody is like hamming it up or winking at the camera. You know, you just get this, this sense of sort of docudrama or almost reality TV. But, you know, this is the 70s. This is 1972. And in that way, I think this is a bit of a trailblazing film. I agree. I think some of the acting is a little rough. But I think that adds to the, the semi-reality of the piece. There are some moments that are just endearing and they have nothing to do 
with the beast. Uh, that opening bit where the old men are sitting around the store <laughs> gabbing yeah. and just talking about all this. Right. Yeah, the acting's a little clunky, but it's still so endearing and and made me feel like I was there because it, it felt real, right? Uh, in in a weird way. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? And I think you know that it, there was almost no more to that than Pierce having the the camera set up on some guys from Falk and say, you know, kind of work these lines in, but just kind of do what you would normally do. <laughs> and that it does, it gives you that sense of both reality and sort of unreality, you know, when the kid runs up and, and tells his story, but it, uh, you, it pulls you in. I mean, it just invites you to come be a part of this town. And I think that the writing, the, the narration in this is so well done, you know, just the lines, there's so many iconic lines from this, uh, right? Mighty nice place to live until the sun goes down. You know, and it's just simple things like that that stick in your memory yeah. after seeing it. The people that made this movie, I don't know anything about them. Did they have a background in filmmaking and narrative filmmaking and documentaries? Like, Do you know much about them? I, well, yeah, it's a fascinating story because to answer your question, uh, it's no. <laughs> this was the <laughs> very, this is the very first film that Charles B. Pierce ever made. And it's inspiring for indie filmmakers everywhere because he did sort of the ultimate guerrilla indie film in making this. You know, Charles B. Pierce, in 1969, he moved to Texarkana, which is the closest larger city to Falk, Arkansas. And he originally was in advertising and he was shooting commercials. And that's what got him behind the camera. And he realized he loved making films more than he did just straight advertising. And he got this idea about making a film because what hit the newspapers in the early 70s was all these reports of a weird creature menacing Falk, Arkansas, and Jonesville, Arkansas, which was you know, no more than 30, 40 minutes south of Texarkana. And he just became sort of possessed of the idea of making a film about the stuff going on there. And of course, problem number one is money. He, did, he didn't have it. And he had to convince somebody to front him some money to make this movie. He approached a trucking company in town that he had shot commercials for. It was Ledwell Trucking. Took some talking on his part, but he convinced the owner of Ludwell to front him about a hundred grand. And he did. And he went and he shot this movie with a, almost a completely volunteer crew. So he had the vision for doing this, but there were so many obstacles, including getting the local people to even talk to him. You know, because these were rural Southern people. They felt that something really strange had actually happened to them. And they didn't want to be made fun of. You know, the last thing they wanted was some guy from the city coming down, making a, a film about them that would mock them. And so it took a lot of convincing on Pierce's part to even get this movie to be made. But once he started to share his vision with the people of Falk, they slowly got on board with it. And Smokey Crabtree, who appears in the film, uh, was one person in particular that Pierce got on his side early on 
and help to convince the other people that, you know, this could really be good for the town if we go ahead and do this. So he, he finally did. He enlisted a fellow ad guy uh, to write the script, write the narration. His name was Earl E. Smith. And that was his first screenplay. Uh, oh, wow. his first try at this. So that's, that's really two firsts so far, you know, really three. It was uh, Pierce's first film, uh, Ledwell's first venture into um, investing in a film being made. It's Earl E. Smith's first screenplay ever. And then it was the first time that, you know, any of these people had been on screen or saying lines. And it was just the ultimate sort of let's go shoot a movie, you know, sort of that backyard gang type of, oh yeah, of spirit to it, but on a grand scale. And so they went through all this, the, the creature costume was a Hollywood quality gorilla costume, which is kind of painfully apparent in a few scenes, unfortunately, yeah, especially towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the biggest letdown of the film, I think. But in the further shots, there's a real effective, you know, just real quick, cuts where you see flashes of the creature and it's much more convincing in those cases but that well all of that you know resulted in pierce had his footage his next hurdle was making a film out of it because he didn't have editing equipment or anything approaching that in order to make a feature-length film so he actually took his raw footage to la he didn't know anybody there. He didn't have any contacts whatsoever. Oh, wow. And so he just sort of went place to place trying to get somebody within his budget, which was basically nothing, to help him make this into a film. And he finally met somebody uh, by the name of uh, Jaime Mendoza Nava, who had a small production company and uh, was also a composer of music and convinced him they, they cut a deal that Mendoza Nava would make sure that the movie got put together and would have a proper soundtrack and things of that nature. And what Pierce would have to do is pay for the editor and Mendoza would get a percentage of the royalties, which ended up being a, an excellent deal for everybody. Um, it was edited by Tom Boutros, who also edited The Hideous Sun Demon, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so he, he put the footage together and made it the film that we now know. Mendoza did the soundtrack music, with the exception of the song uh, Hey Travis Crabtree and the um, sort of the wandering Bigfoot ballad song that's in there. Um, that's actually written and played by Charles B. Pierce himself, Okay, which is kind of a cool little trivia flourish to that. Um, so, you know, to, to fast forward this a little bit, now that he had a finished film he started shopping it around to studios, nobody was interested, you know, a Bigfoot movie about Arkansas. You know, are you kidding me? That's sort of the, yeah the blowback that he got. So he decided I'm going to show it myself. And he found a, a theater in Texarkana that had sort of fallen into disrepair, but with some cleanup was ready to show a movie. It was a Paramount Theater in Texarkana. And he struck a deal with the theater, $3,500 a week. He could show the movie as many times as he wanted. So uh, in August 18th, 1972, the movie was shown for the first time. And with the local interest, there were lines around the block. Oh, wow. For days after days. 
and it was a, a local sensation. So much so that, you know, the only extra print that Pierce had of the movie at first was much lesser quality and was really never meant to be shown actually anywhere. But the demand was so high that they started showing it in Shreveport, Louisiana. And it didn't take long before uh, Pierce made back all his money, was able to pay off his investor, and uh, Mendoza Nava got everything that he needed. Right on. And all of a sudden, Hollywood started calling and saying, hey, you know, that Bigfoot movie you were shopping, we've heard that there's good things happening. And at first, Pierce played it very wisely and said, no, I'm, I'm actually doing fine by myself. You know, thanks, but no thanks. But eventually, he was able to strike a deal that he liked with Howco International and eventually AIP. And they put it into wide distribu distribution. You know, they got it into uh, movie theaters. It found a really strong following on the drive-in circuit. You know, when you talk to a certain generation of people, they say it made a strong impression on them as a drive-in film. And in the end, this movie that cost probably at the end of the day around $200,000, $250,000 to make a gross $25 million. That's and amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it, it launched, it, it set Pierce on a pretty amazing trajectory for the rest of his career. You know, he... He directed a number of other films. Probably the other best well-known Pierce film is The Town That Dreaded Sundown, mm -hmm. which is um, you know, based on a Texarkana serial killer. And also, he's credited with contributing to the screenplay of Sudden Impact, the Dirty Harry movie. Oh, really? Yes. And huh. there's, even, there's even talk that he is the person responsible for the phrase go ahead make my day now that's <laughs> that's sort of um an apocryphal tale i'm not exactly sure that he is single-handedly <laughs> responsible but he is credited as a screenwriter for that film so he he did exceptionally well for himself and uh, really made a career out of it and it was a legend of boggy creek that put him on the map well good for him that's awesome yeah there's hope <laughs> there is. Absolutely right. And I think that's, in particular, in Pierce's case, it was just, from the beginning, completely do-it-yourself. Yeah. You, you know, it's the Falk mayor was quoted in a newspaper as having said, you know, here's a man who never made a movie. Uh, here's someone who never backed a movie. Here's people who never acted in a movie before. And the success of this could not be foreseen. And I really think it was a lightning in a bottle type of situation. You know, it's just everything aligned at the right time. And Pierce was so determined to see this through. He just had this vision for this film. And the, the help that he got on it, I think, was, was absolutely key. Uh, you know, it, to put, you know, anyone who's ever done a project like that knows, you know, the edit is everything. And the edit on this film just so, so often gives you the impression and it blurs the lines of you know, something that you know is a recreation, something that you know is is fictional. It's a guy in a suit, but it's shot in a way that is so verite and, and it bleeds very easily into, you know, what today we call found footage movies. But there's elements of that 
flash cuts and you know there there's that one scene in particular that I, has always struck me where it's the young boy who's out hunting by himself yes and and he hears his dogs in distress and there's a large portion of that scene where it's just a tracking shot following this kid running through the woods and the the mu- the music is stirring you know sort of leading up to something and you hear the dogs barking and then all of a sudden it goes quiet and the scene stops and you almost run past this little clearing and the creature looms in the background. And to me, that's the legend of Boggy Creek in miniature for me is just, you get this feeling of this poor kid is in peril. You then you just buy it in that moment. One of the great things about it is for somebody like me who had for such a long time relied on my own imagination, you know, to give life to these accounts that I was reading in all these Bigfoot books, you know, over and over again. And maybe there were some illustrations and of course you'd seen the Patterson Gimlin film and things like that. But what the legend of Boggy Creek does for a Bigfoot fan is it, it, for the first time for many people put flesh and bone on what it would have been like to actually see one of these creatures out in the woods. It just gave you a sense of that. And it was pretty chilling. You know, that scene is so chilling even though the creature just stands there and then when the young boy sort of drops down and shoots the creature, it falls to its knees and lets out this blood curdling scream. I mean, it's so effective. It's so creepy. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are some moments that are a little, you know, kind of chuckle a little bit, but there are other mm-hmm. moments where, you know, that sequence in particular you're talking about, of course, everything at the end is terrifying. Mm-hmm. That the, the attack on the, the Ford house or the Ford home is yes. just, that's just, I mean, I'll forgive them for lingering too long on the gorilla mask because mm-hmm. the rest of that scene just plays out so unsettling. Yeah. And even at the very beginning, the movie, you talk about the narration, uh, you know, this is based on a true story, but then you have like a couple of minutes of just that kid running. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he's going to go into the, the little shop where the men are talking yeah. and, and all that. What is he running from? Why does he look so freaked out? What is going on here? Why is there so much tension in a movie that just started? Mm-hmm. And it, it grabbed me just from that moment. And it had me on board and, and buying into everything that was happening here. I am so glad that I finally pulled the trigger on this one. Because I really enjoyed it. Um, now, I had to watch it streaming through Amazon Prime, but mm-hmm. there is a good Blu-ray of it out there, right? Yeah, th- there is. And it, it was um, uh, Pamela Pierce, you know, that's um, Charles Pierce's daughter. Right. Who was going to be at Bash, has overseen the restoration. Okay. I was going to ask know, you I, if that, she yeah, was involved with that. She was. And, you know, I uh, it, it it's hard to overstate how stunning the restoration of it is because the versions that I've always ever seen have been pan and scan and just not, uh, there's no, it, it's charming in a sense. I mean, it seems it's like seventies drive in grindhouse almost quality, mm-hmm. but the restoration is, you know, the full widescreen and just vibrant color. And it's, it's a night and day difference between, I mean, literally there's, scenes that in the the version that I first saw that were sort of just dark and shadowy. And I thought, oh, okay, well, they didn't want to show too much, but it turns out it was just the print you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and the restoration brought some of those things. So details to, to greater light 
and it's really worth looking into. Well, add it to the list. Yes. <laughs> uh, now there've been a number of sequels uh, or, or follow-ups, I guess. You could, I don't know. Would you call them sequels? In a certain sense, yes. Um, I think that it's convoluted in a way because the movie that really is the spiritual sequel is uh, the third Boggy Creek film. Okay. Uh, the the second movie that has the Boggy Creek in the title is I, but Return to Boggy Creek, and that's best remembered, I think, for the fact that Don Wells <laughs> stars in it. But it, it it's entirely fictionalized. I mean, it, it completely leaves behind the sort of docudrama feel and based on real events, and it just simply tells a story that has a Boggy Creek creature in it as part of the plot. Okay, and if I'm I'm not hundred percent sure how directly involved Charles Pierce was with it. Uh, he may not have been very involved at all. I'd have to go back and look. But the third film was actually called Boggy Creek 2. The legend continues. And this is the one that people probably remember from uh, the later era of Mystery Science Theater 3000 because they riffed Did it Boggy get the treatment? Creek 2. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's very interesting because it it updates sort of the whole framework and style of the legend of boggy Creek, but it just doesn't work nearly as well. And that's partially because there's more fictionalized content than there is recreations. There are recreations throughout it, but the emphasis is on telling this story about a professor and college students who accompany him into the swamps of Falk, Arkansas and the sulfur river. And Charles B. Pierce, by the way, plays the professor in uh, that particular um, <laughs> film. The entertainment value of it is super high, although I would say that Boggy Creek 2 falls very squarely into the camp category. Oh, okay. Whereas Legend of Boggy Creek, I don't think you can call it camp. I think it's doing something too well to be camp. But Legend of Boggy Creek 2 is campy. You know, I'll be the first to admit to that. It, there is a camp quality to it. And if you take it at that level, it's a blast. It's it's a great film uh, because it does take you back on location. A lot of it was filmed in the Falk, Arkansas and Caddo Lake area. And there's this whole sequence towards the end uh, where there's a, a actor by the name of Jimmy Clem who's this big old Southern swamp guy. And it, <laughs> he's out there. He knows the truth about the Boggy Creek monster. And he goes out and lights his fires every night to scare the creature away. And the professor and his group sort of collide with him. And it's, it's a lot of fun. But at that point, you know, whatever sort of serious reporting Pierce was trying to do in the original version that's that's long gone you know and even there's a couple of the recreations that are just straight up played for laughs and oh, i think okay. that's you know that's okay i think why would you tr want to make essentially the same movie twice and i he didn't try to do that at all so i think in total there are really three pierce related boggy creek movies and they all have a real different tone and quality to each one 
Right on. Well, I will make sure there's links in the show notes to, uh, if I can find the Blu-ray for sale anywhere, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that, as well as to Small Town Monsters. Is there anything else that we want to make sure we mention that you're involved with, you want people to know about before we wrap up? Well, I think for the sake of Small Town Monsters, you know, every year now, this is, I think, the fourth year, you know, we have launched a Kickstarter that pays for a a huge chunk of the production costs of the films. And then... Um, there's a number of reward levels, as with any Kickstarter, and that's how um, the book that I put together was offered in our last Kickstarter campaign that was a five-year retrospective of the company and the films that we've done up to this point. And I just started work on the next book. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be uh, the next. We have a, We'll have four projects by the end of this year that are fall under the on the trail of moniker it's uh, on the trail of ufos one and two and on the trail of bigfoot one and two and so I've, I've just started the process of reaching out to people to be a part of that book this time around so that'll be available at a certain reward level that launches february 4th so um if oh. you look at look for small town monsters on kickstarter and you want to be a part of backing the projects, there's all sort of reward levels, everything from the digital copies of the new films all the way up to, you know, physical media, T-shirts, the book level, posters. And in recent Kickstarters, we've even offered people the opportunity to become, you know, creative consultants to Small Town Monsters so that they can help us you know, have a hand in what they want to see us do over the next year or next couple of years. So that's coming up, you know, and, and Kickstarters are like a 30 day window. So mm-hmm. starting February 4th, if anyone's interested, uh, you can check that out and you'll be helping us to do our next series of projects. So this wasn't planned at all, but I've been intending to put this episode out in two weeks, which is February 4th. So wow. perfect timing, that. perfect yeah, timing. Absolutely. That's amazing. So we'll make sure there's a link to that as well. I'll go through and I'll look for it. It's Kickstarter, you said? Yeah. Okay. So we'll make sure there's a link to that. And, you know, in every episode of Monster Kid Radio, anyway, I've got a link to what you're up to because you're contributing every week with the beta capsule review. And I want to make sure people can find you if they want to. Uh, So again, thank you so much for everything you've done for the show. Uh, Thank you for your friendship and your support over the years. I can't wait for conventions to start back up so I can see you in person again, man. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think we're all on pins and needles right now. Fingers crossed to see what happens this summer. Because one year was too long. But I have to say this, Monster Kid Radio has been a sustaining force as far as that goes. And I know that I'm not alone in feeling that way because... You know, without a bash to go to or without a G-Fest, those left really gaping holes uh, for a variety of reasons in a lot of our lives. And Monster Kid Radio has been like a lifeline for us to get our monster fix and to hear those friendly voices who love what we love. I'm really appreciative of what you do and how you do it. And I know I'm not alone in that. Well, I appreciate it. I really do. I mean, I, I, I've often joked that uh, I'd just be sitting here talking about these monster movies to my cats <laughs> uh, anyway, but I, I do appreciate it. I mean, I, I know I'm just a small part of the monster kid ecosystem or ecosystem at this point, but 
I do want to contribute and I do want to give people that. So thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You bet. I'm going to end on the best way to end a conversation is when the guest says something nice about me. So I'm going to end on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hey, Travis Crabtree, wait a minute for me, let's go back in the bottom, back where the fish are biting, where all the world's inviting, and nobody sees the flowers bloom but me. Hey, Travis Crabtree, do you see what I see on the gentle winds of morning? A million birds are singing like the bells of heaven ringing, and nobody sees the flowers bloom but me. Drop me on a patch of land Never stepped upon by man Where the crystal water flows deep While the falcon flies high Across the yellow-eyed sky Lord, ain't it great to be free Hey, Travis Crabtree It's the right life for me bottoms while the birds and beasts are crying because the sun is dying and nobody sees the flowers bloom but me and nobody sees the flowers bloom but me and nobody sees the flowers bloom but me. While parked on a lonely country road on March 3rd, 1946, Samuel Fuller, age 24, and Linda Mae Jenkins, 19, were attacked by a man wearing a white hood over his head. They were dragged from their car and beaten, but both survived. Then on March 24, 1946, he struck again. This time, his victims were found dead. Only 21 days later, April 14, 1946, he killed Roy Allen, 17, and Peggy Loomis, only 15, in a city park. Yet he was to strike again and again. He was called the Phantom Killer. Now, 30 years later, most believe he still walks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. Charles B. Pierce brings to the giant screen one of the most incredible true stories ever filmed, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, starring Academy Award winner Ben Johnson from American International Pictures. The Town That Dreaded Sundown, rated R. A bionic monster, a menacing giant, an awesome machine, unleashed with a deadly task. Godzilla, the only hope for Earth's survival. Godzilla versus the bionic monster. Godzilla strives to win supremacy in a fight to the end. Will Godzilla triumph? The Earth survive? Godzilla versus the bionic monster, an Earth-shaking movie. Rated G.
Of course, there are links in the show notes to everything that you heard about in this week's episode. You can follow Mark over at Small Town Monsters. You can pick up some of their movies using the Amazon affiliate link. You can check out anything that you've heard about here on the show and well, the show notes are on our website, and that's monsterkidradio.net. You're going to find links to all of that, plus links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Discord, just everything. If you need to know something about Monster Kid Radio, that's your first stop. That's where you're going to want to go, because this is where it's all at. Plus, you know, I mentioned the Patreon thing earlier in this episode. If you want to become a patron, you can follow the link from our website to go straight there. Or I guess you can go to patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. Whatever works for you, of course. <laughs> of course. Also over there, you're going to see what we're talking about next week, but I'll give you a little spoiler right now, a sneak peek. I've got Go Forth and Games, Tom Greganis coming down to the show to talk about the movie, The Zombies of Morotau. Unlike The Legend of Boggy Creek, I've seen The Zombies of Morotau quite a bit. It's a really cool movie, but I don't want to play my hand early. You're just going to have to come back next week to find out what Tom and I think about this movie when we talk about it on the show. Of course, we'll have all the other things that you love about Monster Kid Radio here as well, as long as we're able to keep producing it. And I really hope they are because I love Kenny's and Mark's contributions. You know, if you have an idea for a contribution that you'd like to make to the show, drop me a line. Our contact information, hey, Monsters in the Machine, you haven't been doing your job lately. Why don't you tell them how to get a hold of us? You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. There you go. Now, we really appreciate, when I say we, I mean me. I guess I can include Wednesday on that. We really appreciate you helping to boost the signal by sharing the posts on Facebook, retweeting tweets, talking about the podcast on various message boards, recommending it to people. Just anything that you can do to help spread the word about the show, I greatly appreciate. Also, you might want to spread the word about the Monster Kid Movie Club because this weekend on Twitch live, we're showing some free monster movies as we always do starting at 11 a.m pacific with the pre-show and then right around noon with the regular show with the movies i'll be cutting into chat every once in a while that sort of thing and this saturday the theme is mad doctors mad scientists mad monsters this is a mad scientist weekend we're going to be watching some movies that have to do with mad scientists and mad doctors and i can tell you right now off the top of my head we're going to be showing movies like the head she demons torture ship and who knows what else i'm still trying to work out some details on that but you'll want to come back for that also i'll announce on facebook the schedule when that is ready to go out as well so follow us over on twitch if you're a twitch user or go straight to monsterkidmovie.club and join us for the movies i think that's pretty much it let's go ahead and wrap up the show my name is derek by reminding you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution on commercial no derivatives uh, 3.0 unported license. Now, I didn't mention this at the top of the show, but what you heard at the top of the show and what you're going to hear right about now is a version of the theme song, a cover of the theme song from the TV show Bigfoot and Wild Boy. This is performed by the Nick 
Adams. I've talked about the Nick Adams here before. I'm a huge fan of the Nick Adams. Unfortunately, they're no longer together. They're no longer a band. But for a few years, when they were in college together, they were a band. And they put together like four or five different albums. And they've given me permission to play their music here on the show in the past. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate their cover of Bigfoot and Wild Boy, which you're going to hear in a second. Right before I tell you, my name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. From out of the great Northwest comes the legendary Bigfoot, who eight years ago saved a young child lost in the vast wilderness and raised that child until they grew up to be Wild Boy. <laughs>